Oh, they tell me of a home far beyond the sky. They tell me of a home far away. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Oh, they tell me of an uncloudy day. To the parish minister, Amy, in her absence, to the board of the, this wonderful church, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Palo Alto, and all the staff who make up the team here, to all of you who've gathered here in person, inside and outside and virtually, I am extremely honored that Amy has entrusted me with this responsibility. I want to begin by saying something that I think would be obvious uh, and I, something I think you already uh, recognize, but let me say it anyway. The preacher, uh, the pastor, the teacher, the counselor who stands in this place uh, on a regular basis is gifted beyond measure. Uh, this kind, generous, Harvard-educated, street-smart, perceptive, witty woman who stands here and declares to you on a a weekly basis is a rare gift in preaching circles. And I've been around preaching uh, a long time. Uh, There is a hierarchy to our relationship because she's my boss. Uh, But she has become a friend to me in this less than one year that I've been on the staff here at uh, UUCPA. I hope that you will continue to hear her voice, follow her lead for many, many more years to come. Allow me a moment, please, to appreciatively applaud and lovingly laud the members of the Membership and Growth Committee who are here virtually or in person inside or outside. This is the group of people that I spend the most time with, other than Amy, uh, thinking about how we can become a a more welcoming space and more welcoming place. Their conversations have inspired me, and I just want to take a moment to thank them for their patience as that hard work continues. I want to thank Susan, uh, our worship associate this morning. She's done a masterful job of leading this service, And because this happened behind the scenes and you couldn't see it, she's also done a masterful job of putting up with me uh, all this week when I refused to participate in the planning and refused to send her what she was asking me for. Uh, Thank you, Susan, for your patience. Her last message to me was, John, I'm going to respect your process. Uh, (laughs) And I won't ask you for anything else. And she did. My amazing wife, Tammy, is here with me today. She's right down front. Uh, My adorable, our adorable daughter, Madison, is here as well. They asked me to not ask them to stand, so (laughs) I I, I won't ask them to stand. Uh, In addition, some friends of mine are probably on this Zoom somewhere. Let me say to the committee, don't don't bug them about joining the church. They're just... They just came to... (laughs) They just came to see what what their friend had to say. Uh, But thank you so much for those of you who are there um, for making room in your schedules. I love you too, and I appreciate you, and your presence here lifts my comfort index in the way that 
uh, only familiar faces can. I want to call your attention for the few moments we have together here to those two poems that were just read by Susan, uh, two of them together, written by the late, great Langston Hughes. On, on this day where fatherhood merges with Juneteenth, Langston's words seem like a, a fair launching place uh, for us to start. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Or does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Or maybe it just sags like a heavy load? Or does it just explode? Mother to son. Well, son, I tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stairs. It had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I've been climbing on. I've been reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't. Don't you turn back now. Don't you sit down on the stairs because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now. Pride's been going on, honey. I'm still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Last Thursday evening, the Golden State Warriors defeated the Boston Celtics to win their fourth NBA title in the last eight years. A remarkable accomplishment. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I know that some of you are as well. The, the series was hard fought and the Warriors prevailed, but prior to getting into that engagement with the Boston, Boston Celtics, they had another difficult battle with the Memphis Grizzlies. During that difficult series, one of their reserve players, Gary Payton II, son of the great Gary Payton known as the Glove, got hurt. He broke away from the crowd and he was about to go up for a layup and one of the members of the Memphis Grizzlies team, some say on purpose, hit him from behind and he went crashing to the floor. He fractured a bone in his left elbow and he's, he was left-handed and still is. A few days later, at a news conference, the doctors for the team reported that his injury was directly related to how he fell. It wasn't the fall. Falls are common in sports, but they reported that it was how he fell that mattered. I've chosen to hang a tag over this particular talk that says we should be teaching our children how to fall. One word was missing on the website. It said teaching children to fall. Uh, <laughs> that's a different message for a different day. But the title of this talk is Teaching Our Children How to Fall. I had the great privilege of going with my brother Walter to Walmart some years ago he was going there to buy a bicycle for his son, Brandon, who was small. He was younger than our young Madison. And uh, he was 
going to buy a bicycle. So we went into Walmart and we walked past the people we knew and we waved at some people who recognized us. And while we were walking toward the aisle, we, I said to Walter, Walter, you are going to buy a bicycle with training wheels, right? And Walter did not respond. Uh, knowing Walter, my brother, like I do, I knew he was either ignoring me or he didn't hear the question. And because I don't like to be ignored, I came closer to him and asked him the question again, Walter, you are going to get Brandon a bike with uh, training wheels, right? Because, you know, if, if you don't get him a bike with training wheels, he's probably going to fall and he's probably going to hurt himself. Still no response from Walter. And so I, I, I was about to ask the question again. We walked around the corner. We turned on the aisle right where the bicycles were being displayed. And without even looking back at me, without slowing his stride, Walter said this. I've already taught my son how to fall. I've already taught my son how to fall. I, I stopped in my tracks. He didn't notice. I stopped in my tracks and I let the words that my brother said to me just wash over me the way you do when you're sitting alone, perhaps sometimes in private. You never met Walter. And if you did meet him, you'd know that he's not a philosophy major. Uh, Walter was not trying to drop some great thought on me so that I'd wrestle with it for the next few years. He was just offering what he thought was a simple response. I've already taught my son how to fall. It's not resonating with you the way it resonated with me. Maybe you don't realize he had other options. Walter could have said, he could have said, John, I've already taught my son how to hit the brakes. I would have understood that. I've already taught my son. John, you don't need to worry about Brandon using his bike because I've already taught him how to slow down. When he finds himself in a compromising situation on his bike and things start to spin out of control for him, I've taught him how to apply the brakes so that even if he does fall, he does so at a slower rate of speed and does less, much less damage to his body than he would have done otherwise. He already knows how to apply the brakes. What a great gift for a parent to give to a child. The gift of knowing how, when, and why to pump the brakes in life. This would have been good advice and I would have understood it. Life comes at us fast when we're young, Maddie. And sometimes if we're not careful, uh, we, we start to move, we start to act, we start to react in ways that are uninformed. But Walter didn't choose to say that. He could have said, John, I've already taught my son how to find and keep his balance. I would have understood that. John, you don't have to worry about my son uh, and worry about him falling. I've already made sure that he knows how to get his feet from the pedals to the ground in the most efficient way. And if he has to absorb impact, it'll be lessened because he knows how to get and keep his balance. How precious is the parent who provides instruction in this area for a child, teaching them not to get too far out over their skis, teaching them not to believe people who say that making a living for yourself 
is more important than creating a life for yourself. Teaching them to be balanced at all times, I would have understood this, but Walter did not say that. He said, I've already taught my son how to fall. Why couldn't he have just said, I've already taught my son how to, how to believe in himself and his abilities? I would have understood that. Thanks for the question, John. Yes, training wheels are important, but I've already done the hard work of educating my son so that when he comes upon obstacles in life or things masquerading as obstacles, he knows how to handle himself. Every good parent leans in here. Any of these responses would have been helpful, reasonable, responsible. I've taught him to pump the brakes. I've taught him to keep his balance. I've taught him to focus on his abilities and beliefs. Yet upon hearing my concern for my nephew, my older brother Walter said to me, I have already taught my son how to fall. I never got around to asking Walter about his response. I've carried it with me for many, many years. And I stand here before you today wondering if maybe he knew something at the time that I did not know. A truth that has grown on me over the years. That truth is that parenting through the lens of our dreams and of our children's dreams is incomplete. At worst, it may leave those who depend on us, our children, lacking in the necessary skills that they need to deal with extremely difficult situations in life. Maybe Walter knew the answer to Langston's question. What happens to a dream deferred? I read Barack's book, The Audacity of Hope. I, I understand it's important to give kids high vision. I know it's important to tell them that they need to shoot for the moon and land among the stars. I, I, I get all of that. It sounds good, as, as most platitudes do. But what people fail to mention when they drop those platitudes on us, they fail to mention that this privilege of shooting for the moon may be limited not by one's genetic code, but by one's zip code. Those of us who are of ebony hue, those of us who are of African descent, those of us whose skin has been kissed a little longer, more passionately by the sun, <laughs> do not always have the privilege of aiming so high and shooting for the moon. Far too often, when we jog through neighborhoods while black, when we go to grocery stores while black, when we go to church while black, we not only do not get to shoot for the moon, we often find ourselves being shot instead. You don't have to believe me. I brought some guests with me. Trayvon Martin, standing right over there. He can testify. Michael Brown, standing right back there. He can testify. Stephen Clark, standing right here next to me. He can testify. Tamir Rice has joined us now on Zoom. He can testify, can testify that Langston Hughes' question is not rhetorical. It deserves an answer. What happens to a dream deferred? 
three suggestions, and I take my seat. Sometimes dreams die. Sometimes they die before us. Before, that is to say, they die before they make it to us. Before Tammy and I had this beautiful child that you see sitting down front here, we, we spent some time trying to make a different child, and, and practice is fun. Uh, we, we, we spent a great deal of time trying to create another child. And those of you who've walked down this path know how difficult it can be trying to time everything just right and uh, testing all the time to see whether you're going to have a child of not or not and having that disappointment repeat itself over and over and over again. But one morning, Tammy got up and went into the restroom to do a test and she did the test and when she came out, the result was positive. We were about to have ourselves a baby. Our dream was about to come true. The feeling of euphoria was palpable. This was a kind, there was a kind of uh, pre-baby joy that began to take root in that moment. We started looking for beds and looking for names. We decided we were going to call her Sierra. We imagined which one of us she was going to look more like, and we decided to start verbalizing that name around our house, and we did. And we, we, we were living close enough at that time in Vallejo, California, to Kaiser, that we could actually walk to our appointments. I remember walking to many of those appointments with Tammy. But on this particular day, I can't remember whether we walked or not. But when we got to the doctor's office for our routine visit, Tammy's regular doctor was not there. We met another woman who was new to me. She was warm. She was welcoming as she positioned Tammy on the table and prepared her for the exam. The room was cool, I remember. And I was thirsty, but I didn't want to leave the room and, and miss something. So I sat next to my wife, and I held her hand. And we were laughing about something that really doesn't matter at this time. And when I heard the doctor say these words, sucking all the life out of that room, she said, no heartbeat. I cannot find a heartbeat. She said more after that, but I don't remember what it was. She told us what we had to do next. She told us about appointments we need to make, needed to make. I can't remember all of the details of what she shared, but what still resonates with me now, what I can hear while standing here with you, is her saying, no heartbeat. I can't find a heartbeat. My friends, I've come here to tell you today, our children need to know that the very best of our dreams are one heartbeat away from a nightmare. Some dreams die before us. They die prior to making the full journey. This means we have, we're forced to reconsider our priorities, forced to refocus our purpose, forced to reexamine our expectations, the profound grief that grows out of losing what one never had is multiplied by the imagination. One of my favorite singers sings a song I listen to often when I think about Sierra. Can you tell me how can one miss what they never had? 
How could I reminisce when there is no past? How could I have memories of being happy with you? Can someone tell me? How can it be? I miss the times that we almost shared. I miss the love that was almost there. I miss the times that we used to kiss, at least in my dreams. Let me take my time and reminisce. I miss the times that we never had. What happened to us? We were almost there. Whoever said it's impossible to miss what you never had, never almost had you. I invite you behind the curtain there to see and share my family's pain as we grapple with the loss of a dream that died before it could be delivered to our address. Here's my question to you. What is it that has been reaching, that you've been reaching for that's just outside of your grasp? What is it that once made you feel like tomorrow was your friend only to evaporate before the sun rose over that hill that you were climbing. Here's my recommendation. Let's tell our young people the whole story. No need to show them our strengths and cover our scars. No need to display our wins and avoid discussing our wounds. No reason to trumpet our successes and not mention our stumbles. In teaching our children how to fall, we let them know who we really are. And we help them set expectations for the lives that they're certainly going to live. Sometimes, I tell you, dreams die before us. What happens to a dream deferred? Sometimes dreams die. Sometimes they die before us. But sometimes they die before us. They die in our presence. Among the things I love most about being Madison's dad, I get a front row seat every time she gets to see something for the first time. We were living in Seattle, Washington, the first time she ever saw snow. She reached out her small, chubby hand. Her eyes opened wider. A slow, steady smile started to break at the corners of her mouth. There was a joy in this child that's normally reserved for when a child thinks they've discovered something new. As I watched her joyous reaction and her interaction with the snow, it dawned on me that Madison had personalized and internalized this interaction with, new, with this new kind of precipitation. She already knew about rain. Now she was experiencing snow. I was standing there in the snow thinking, I'm here and it's snowing. Madison was standing here in the snow thinking, it's snowing because I'm here. <laughs> As a father, I love having those first-time experiences with my child, seeing her run head-on into newness. She had big fun with me. We made a snowman that day. We rolled a ball of snow, and it grew larger and larger, and... We made eyes for it, and we got a nose for it, and we put a scarf around the neck, and we called him Frosty for obvious reasons. When we finished, we went inside to dry off and warm up and have some food. When we came back later in the day, someone had knocked the head off of Frosty. 
I watched my daughter's face closely as she stood looking at the scene of the headless snowman. No smile this time, something closer to sorrow. No joy this time. Her expression showed judgment. It was as though her expectations had not only not been met, but she personalized what happened to the snowman. Her new friend was gone. Someone had taken her friend away. It's challenging to get inside the head of a child when the news of Buffalo, New York's massacre found us. Ten black, innocent victims removed from the planet by the hatred of one cowardly white supremacist. Say their names after me, will you? Robert Drury, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Pearl Young, and Ruth Whitfield. What did these victims do to deserve the brutality that they received? They were simply going about the business of being black in America, buying groceries. And to make it worse, this cold, calculating young man made the decision to live stream the murders. By doing so, he hoped to ensure that all of them would die, not just in Buffalo, not just in the grocery store, but they would die in our presence. They would die before our eyes. What happens to a dream deferred? Sometimes dreams die. Sometimes they die before us. Sometimes they die before us. And finally, sometimes dreams die before us. They die before we do. We outlive the possibility of them coming true. I hope you can still hear me. One of the most challenging parts of being a parent is when life reverses the order of things. Parents should not bury their children. But that's what happened in Uvalde, Texas. Elementary school children, some of whom who had attended an award ceremony earlier in the day, came face to face with a young man who'd run out of dreams of his own. He shot his grandmother in the face, got in his vehicle, and drove to Cobb Elementary School. So that those parents who dropped their kids off at school earlier in the day can no longer live in the presence of the children they brought into this world. They must now live in their absence. There'll be no moving on to middle school. There'll be no high school 
graduations. There'll be no taking them around to look at colleges to see which one they like the best. There'll be no first day of college. There'll be no starting a new career as a source. There'll be no wedding day, no walking down the aisle. These parents have outlived their own dreams. One of the old pastors in Dallas, Texas, Manuel Scott Sr., deceased now, was fond of saying one of the greatest tragedies in life is to already be where you're going. To find yourself standing in a place where dreams have been evicted by the landlord. What happens to a dream deferred? I would love to tell my child and all the children in my sphere of influence that dreams always take us to our desired destination. That would not be true or accurate. We must teach our children how to fall. Yes, we need our dreams. We should teach our children to conceive and nurture them. But before we exit the stage, we owe it to our children to teach them how to fall. We do so by showing them who we really are and revealing this somewhat darker side of dreams. Sometimes dreams die before us. Sometimes dreams die before us. And sometimes dreams die before us. This, and I go to my seat. If we conceive and continue to conceive and nurture dreams, perhaps those dreams may be able to shield us, cover us, keep us safe when we face the most difficult challenges in life. Not every child, by the way, not every dream in that classroom died that day. One survivor, her name is Maya Cerillo. Maya lived to tell the horrific story of what happened in her classroom on that fateful day. She described the horrific scene as the shooter entered her classroom, made eye contact with her teacher, said goodbye to her, and then killed her. He then shot her classmates. She said the shooter then went to the adjoining classroom connected to theirs, and she heard screaming and gunshots from there. And then this happened. Fearing that the killer would come back into the room and kill her as well, Maya put her hands in the blood of one of her dead classmates, and she smeared that blood all over herself so that she could then lean back and pretend to be dead in the presence of all the death around her. Can you hear me? The dead dreams of those who've come and gone before us leave us gifts. The blood of Martin King spilled at Lorraine Hotel in Tennessee left us gifts. The blood of Malcolm X spilled in New York on that stage left us gifts. The blood of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, innocent, 
left us gifts. When you find yourself in a room full of dead or dying dreams, dip your hands into the blood of the dreams and dreamers who exited the stage before you, before you ever came on the scene. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Or maybe it just sags like a heavy load? Or does it explode? One of my favorite authors placed these words into the mouth of one of his favorite characters, Robert Kincaid. Robert said, the old dreams were good dreams. They didn't work out, but I'm glad I had them. 